Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I have a funny mini Quake story to share. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner. Pickle? <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of historical sociology and consistent eschatology. Today, we'll be talking about 2012. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about Ministry for the Future, Contact the Movie, and Train to Busan, which was collected in our AMA. Um, it'll be our first foreign language I think thing? so, yes. Dan? Yeah, yeah. I want to say yes. We, um, we have to course, hire as- a historian, clearly, but yes, <laughs> an archivist, yes. <laughs> As usual, we have a lot of things we want to do and not enough time to do them. But we love taking suggestions. One place you can do that is on Twitter. I am at Anna Marie Cox. He is at Dan Dresner. What's another place, Dan, that people can make suggestions? You know, I believe if you go to our Patreon page, which is patriot.com slash space the nation, you are able to make comments, of course, if you are a patron. Uh, you can make comments if you're not a patron, ah. Dan. On some of the posts. That's correct. That's correct. Thank you for the correction. And also, of course, you know, if you were a patron, though, you would get access to the posts immediately, whereas Mm -hmm. in other instances, you know, you're going to have to wait a couple days to hear our scintillating commentary. Yes. And and of course, you you should become a patron. That Mm -hmm. is the best way to support the show. But if you're already a patron or you can't become a patron for some reason... Tell your friends and neighbors, rate and review, et cetera, et cetera. We also have an email, I, I guess I should give out, which mm-hmm. is mail at gmail. And we have a newsletter. We do? Newsletters are the NFTs of journalism, Dan. That is what <laughs> I have decided. Oh, God. But we have one. We have one. We have, we one. have one. It's called the Debris Field. It comes out on Wednesdays. To subscribe, go to tinyletter.com slash nation. Enough with the administrative stuff, Dan. How are you? Doing pretty well, actually. You know what, Anna? I had a day after tomorrow experience yesterday. In that, like, did someone yell your name repeatedly at you? (laughs) No, that would be. (laughs) Um, No, in that, like, I've lived in New England for close to twenty years at this point, and this was, you know, it was like actually a relatively nice day yesterday. It was like sunny, and then within the span of five minutes, like a serious snowstorm came in and it only lasted about 20 minutes it was actually like the perfect emmerich day after tomorrow weather event you know suddenly massive winds like visibility went down completely and in the span of like 20 minutes like actual a half inch of snow actually accumulated which doesn't normally happen so i i realized that it reminded me of day after tomorrow there's no other well, way to you know climate change dan he was wrong about a lot but mm-hmm. it is happening yeah it is definitely a thing <laughs> he was wrong about a lot Bad, bad, bad environmental science across the board. But nonetheless, he was correct that climate change is a thing. How are you doing, Anna? I'm doing okay, Dan. Um, I've had a few good days in a row here. We are having our own Imric-esque weather. It's going to be in the 80s for the next two days and then down to the 30s. Yikes. So that's weird. It's also just not great for anyone. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's nice to have the, the warm weather. But as the new owner of an old house, Uh, like, it's not great for all the things that can go wrong in this house. But I am loving my house. It's been almost exactly a year since I moved in. So that's one of the reasons I'm having. Happy house anniversary. Thank you, Dan. Let's move on to talk about 2012, which is what we were talking about today. Mm -hmm. What's your prior experience with this movie, Dan? So much like... Other Emmerich films, I think this falls under the category of movies I would stumble across on TNT and watch. I'm not sure if I ever actually, again, like Day After Tomorrow, had seen this movie 
from beginning to end. I just remember catching various bits of it. And in fact, this might have been the first time I actually found out how one of the major characters died. So, you know, <laughs> uh, even though I knew he was dead, but like I hadn't actually like seen it. So, and the other thing is, is that I, again, this is a sign of the times. I think the first time I might have noticed this movie wasn't when it actually came out or wasn't in the theater. It was on YouTube in the sense of that destruction scene that we will talk about later is like a YouTubeable clip if there was anyone. Yeah. yeah. So what about you, Anna? I think I saw this in the theater. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. Because I have attested all through Emmerich Airy, I love big dumb movies and <laughs> I miss the heyday of big dumb movies. Like I was going to say this in the newsletter. I, I think these days movies are either big or dumb, but they're not both. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, I, I, hold my... on, hold on. I, as someone who has seen many Fast and Furious films in the theater, I'm going to contest that statement. Uh, all right. They I, are I mean, both big and dumb. I mm, Yes, you, you are correct. And I, I haven't seen enough of the Fast and Furious movies, but I do think there is this thing now where big movies try to be smart. Yeah, and I yeah. think this is a little bit true of the Fast and Furious movies, although I haven't seen enough of them to really say, but like all the superhero movies have, are now too smart for their own good. I mean, I love them, but mm-hmm. they're not dumb in a fun way. They're smart. Yeah. In sometimes a fun way. Well, it, people have tried to invest effort to make them seem like, you know, like Zack Snyder's, you know, we were talking about this before, Zack Snyder's Justice League, it's big. It's not dumb. You know, you, no. there's a lot of things you can say about that movie, but dumb is not one of them. Right. And then I think there's just dumb movies. Yes. Right. Like there's a lot of just dumb movies out there. And and so instead of like the glorious kind of big and dumb that we get from Emmerich, we get things like Tomorrow War, which was kind mm. of small and dumb. Yeah. <laughs> fun. We both in- enjoyed it, right. I think. Oh, yeah. But it, it wasn't it wasn't as fun as Moonfall. No. That is for sure. <laughs> no, it was definitely not as fun as Moonfall. I think it wasn't. Well, speaking, it wasn't dumb enough for Moonfall. Was the was basically yeah, the problem. Right. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of not as dumb as Moonfall, and, and unfortunately not as dumb as Moonfall. <laughs> uh, why are we talking about 2012? That is a fair question, Anna. And I'm gonna. This one is on me, um, which is yeah. we obviously had set up Emma and Carrie with the idea that Moonfall would be the climax, and I think I would maintain it probably still is in some ways, but yes. uh, <laughs> but. Leave it this way, Ever Carey has acquired now internal momentum in the sense of as we have, you know, much like one of Emmerich's films. So, like, as we mm-hmm. were doing all these destruction things, I had to search a little bit to find the IR in some of these films, to be honest, Anna. And I kept thinking that 2012 was Emmerich's film, disaster film, that easily had the most amount of IR in it. And so I kind of thought, okay, we should probably... And it was also... You know, as we were talking about all the various Emmerich tropes, 2012 kept popping up in my head as well. So I thought we should, it would be wrong not to talk about it. And so I actually thought, it, you know, this film would be the the purest and best distillation of Emmerich. <laughs> but, and I think, which is sort of true, but also the effect is a little weird now having seen some of Emmerich's other work. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But first, we need to get to the story behind the story. So tee this up for us, please, Anna. As usual, I have way more I want to tell you than I can in the limited <laughs> amount of time we have. So that is going to be in the newsletter, the mm-hmm. debris field. But I'll go through what I managed to make myself edit out, you know, what made the edit. Uh, it was released in November 13th, 2009, has a Rotten Tomato score of 39%. That's not very good, um, Anna. Which is not good. No, no. Not good at all. It had a budget of $200 million. Mm-hmm. 
and then made almost 800 million. <laughs> 106 million in North America and 600 million in other territories. You said, Dan, it's his most global film. Yeah. You know, people like seeing themselves getting destroyed. That's, you know. Yeah, because actually 166 million is not a great haul for a movie like this in the States. So that's interesting. Yeah. Nope. I wanted to read two kind of representative reviews. It did get four stars in the Washington Post, but it was, Hmm. um, well, I'll just read you. This is the complete review in the Washington Post. (laughs) If a film critic awards four stars to a movie directed by Roland Emmerich, Hollywood's reigning king of catastrophe, the critically scorned director of Independence Day and Godzilla, will the world come to an end? That's a question the ancient Mayans never asked, but it's the one facing me after the enormously satisfying, astonishingly accomplished, reprehensible yet irresistible (laughs) 2012, the crowning achievement in Emmerich's long, profitable career as a destroyer of worlds. Mm -hmm. And this next one is from The New Yorker. Shorter, not sweet. Uh, 2012 is so long, and its special effects are at once so outrageous and so thunderously predictable that by the time I lurched from the theater, I felt that three years had actually passed and the apocalypse was due any second. So, New Yorker, you can always count on New Yorker for those lines. I mean, you know, it's a good line. This is yet another script inspired by a lunatic book. Yeah, I did not read. Again, I've learned things from this from Emmerich Harry, Anna. And one of the things I've learned is I didn't realize how many of Emmerich's films are based on truly crackpot books. Yep, yep. Yeah. Graham Hancock's Fingerprints of the Gods, uh, which is where he also got the Earth's crust displacement theory, which plays a very important role in the movie mm-hmm. and is nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> but Anna, um, our, Albert Einstein supported it, right? I, that's right. That's right. That's right. I actually loved that little Like the jib-jab video? Yes. Yeah, yes. The, I love the jib-jab video. That, that was, was good. Great. That was good. Yes. You know, Dan, I texted you. You know, I want to know what you, th- the, uh, what you thought the odds were that I'd find a quote in which someone talked about pulling aside John Cusack to tell him that, remember, this is a action movie. Yeah, a drama. <laughs> disaster movie, not, not high drama, yes. Yeah, and, and I did not. Oh. So we would have both lost that bet. However, mm-hmm. I did find a lot of interviews in which Cusack himself basically said, I did this for the money. <laughs> So. Good for you, John, is all I can say. Good for you. Yeah, he's a good Marxist, man. Yeah. Just like laying it out there. Yeah. Uh, just uh, for example, I'm not dumb. <laughs> and Roland's one of the most successful directors in the world. And Sony's one of the most stable film companies. And this is going to be their big movie. And they're saying, come do this. And they'll tailor the part for you. They wrote it for you. That's pretty nice. <laughs> I love... John Cusack, the Marxist, describing Sony as one of the most stable film companies. Like, like I, Sony should put that into perspective. I mean, you know, that's just, that's high yeah, praise. Hey, you know, yeah. I'm not dumb. That was Cusack's argument. Yeah. There is an alternate ending, <laughs> which I, I kind of want to talk about more, maybe. And it, basically, in the alternate ending, Adrian's dad and his jazz musician partner survive. That Which I did not shift. realize until we were preparing for this. Like, I didn't realize there was an alternate ending, and then I've caught it, yes. Yeah, so that's the alternate ending. I guess that was too good. <laughs> that was, like, too, ended too much of a high note, too much of a happy ending. I did laugh, however. I don't know if you saw this, like, at the final shot in that alternate ending where you see, I believe, the Genesis, which is the... The, yeah, that's the, the cruise trip, ship, yeah. which seems to be a ground on rock. Like it's at a, called the Genesis. I know, Dan. but like it's at a it? it's at a forty five <laughs> degree angle. It's the worst shot. It's like hysterical looking at it. I, I let me this way. 
I can imagine Emmerich looking at it, it's like, yeah, even I can't go with that. We gotta do it. We gotta, we gotta kill that scene. Kill it. <laughs> we could probably do a whole podcast on the PR that was done for this movie. It was a, one of the first viral campaigns, hmm. um, kind of stealth launched, and it did get some momentum. There was an entire website or multiple websites set up to promote it. Um, There was a Farewell Atlantis website to promote (laughs) the book by Jackson Curtis in the movie with a first chapter, which I could not find. God damn it. If someone can find that. I would love to read it. So this his his uh, website, Jackson Curtis's website, had the first chapter to his book and a forward to the book by Nick Sagan. Yes, that Sagan. Oh, my. Which he actually wrote. Carl Sagan's son wrote a real forward to this fake book. <laughs> there was also How do you a, approach someone um, for that? <laughs> dear dear Mr. Sagan, we would or Dr. Sagan, I don't know if he's like, you know, we would like you to write a forward for this fake book for this thing we're going to do cuz yep. I confess if someone asked me to do that depending on the check I might do it on it. I'm not Well, lie, uh, you know. he, I I hope it was enough. Yes. I hope he, he slept well. I'm sure he did. I, I don't know. You could consider it kind of a lark, I guess, yeah. and, and write it off pretty easily. Hmm. There was also a fictional Institute for Human Continuity <laughs> that had streaming media and blog updates. Oh, there was Charlie Frost's blog. Oh, Woody I want to read character that. character yes. had a blog with updates. He does mention, if you mention, I mean, yeah. he mentions the blog explicitly. He mentions so, his blog. Yeah. And also, you could enter the lottery to be on one of the arcs. Although, that uh, is specifically not in the movie. That no. is actually a thing they specifically say did not happen in this scenario. Nope. However, the PR campaign, there was a, a place where you could enter the lottery. It was basically a full-on War of the World situation. The Institute for Human Continuity had some real science and some fake science in it. The screenshots I saw, it's no longer up. The screenshots I saw, I mean, for 2009, yeah, mm-hmm. it looked like a realish website. Mm-hmm. I found a kind of sad quote from someone at NASA mm. who received over a thousand inquiries from people who thought the website was genuine and condemned it. He condemned it. I've had teenagers writing to me to say they're contemplating suicide because they don't want to see the world end. <laughs> And then he said, and this is, oh, 2009. I think when you lie on the internet and scare children to make a buck, that is ethically wrong. Well, he's not wrong in saying that. It's just that no one cared in the end, as it turns out. And then IP is a flat circle. Uh, There was going to be a TV series that eventually got scratched. (laughs) I just really loved this quote from the person who would have been the executive producer. Uh, noting that they thought it would work because ABC will have an opening in their disaster-related programming <laughs> <laughs> after Lost ends. So there you go. You want to look for the opening in the disaster-related programming. The wh- These days, Dan, we have no openings in our disaster-related programming. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's really come into its own, I think, the disaster-related programming. The one thing I would say is that it wouldn't surprise me that it would have generated that much because, I mean... We're both old enough to remember that the whole 2012 Mayan apocalypse Mm -hmm. thing was a thing that a lot of people talked about. I mean, there was no evidence that it was actually going to happen, but there did seem to be like the sort of millenarianism about, oh, yeah, that's that's going to be the end date or something. And and in fact, let's I'll get this out of the way. This is going to be in the debris field, but maybe it's too big to put in the debris field, which is that one of the problems with the movie, many, 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 many problems, (laughs) not necessarily the biggest one. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I could pick a biggest one yeah. is that they did manage to keep this a secret somehow right 
and there weren't lots and lots of people preparing for the end of the world. You mean within the movie, the plot that was... A, yeah, within yeah, the movie, yeah, within yeah, the yeah, context yeah. of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, we know from, like, people showing up at Dealey Plaza to await, you know, JFK Jr. showing up, hundreds of people. That's just, right. And that's for one of the craziest conspiracy theories out there. There would be hundreds of thousands of people who would be in on this, who would be making their own arcs, who I, would be... I think like, the way I would put running for Congress. Yeah. Imagine, like the basically the the version of QAnon. Let me put it this way: the, the, one of the things that struck me watching this film this time is that there's an odd sort of nostalgia I had watching it. <laughs> no, in the sense of this was made in 2009, and 2009 is a different time than it is now. Mm-hmm. In the sense of, first of all, we'll get to this in the international relations of it. You know, Russia, China, and the United States seem much more cooperative then than they do now. <laughs> but also. Like, I, it's not that I disagree that the things you're saying would happen now, but maybe they wouldn't have happened in 2012. In other words, like, I think that the the extent to which social media, was, you know, has rotted the brains of some people and the degree to which you've seen sort of, you know, extreme polarization hadn't quite taken. You're starting to see that with the Tea Party movement, for example, in 2010. And you're starting to see that with Occupy Wall Street as well. I mean, so I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but it in some ways it doesn't quite have the conspiracy-laden aspect of it that would undeniably be happening now. I completely agree. I I think you're correct about that. I I do think that it is... (laughs) I I hate to use the word implausible, Dan. (laughs) Uh... (laughs) So, listeners, we were talking about the idea that, like, you know, we wanted to add a segment called Line in the Sand with Emma Carey, where it's like, yeah, we can tolerate this wildly implausible plot point or this wildly implausible plot point, but this? The idea that the person is going to be able to, like, check three bags into the the (laughs) airline? No way. I, that's it. I can't buy that. That is unrealistic, you know. And so, yes. yes. We should actually, I'd be, I don't know what my line in the sand on this one would be. <laughs> it's not that they kept, well, you know what? I don't know. See, so like, again, the implausible, what I was going to say, implausible, like they managed to keep this whole arc thing a secret, right? right? Like, yeah. of I, I can't pick a line in the sand. That's the thing with Emmerich, right? Like, <laughs> If you pick a line in the sand, it's automatically a joke because yes. it's like a fucking chessboard, you know, there like, in I, the sand. Actually, like there's like yeah. lines and lines crossing lines. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> the sand looks like a freaking Jackson Pollock painting after a certain yeah. point. I mean, there's, there's no denying that. But leave it this way. Like that didn't bother me as much because at least there was a feint in the script toward that, which is when Charlie keeps saying, yeah, and all these people get killed, you know, who tried to blab. And so like, they actually, right, 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 and right, you right, do right. see like the, right. like the head of the Louvre, Louvre. Yeah. you see the head of the Louvre die, you know, early on. And, and so like, to the extent that Emmerich actually was trying to address something that actually was addressed. Yeah. Uh, you're, it's, it's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay. We do have a segment that's relatively new suggested by a listener, Chekhov's What's It? <laughs> I will go first because okay. I got this one. It was hard for me. And I think actually, yeah. it's hard to say like it's when you when you say something like one of the problems in this movie <laughs> like it's automatically absurd but there were so many little feints that went nowhere yeah. so i was looking for Chekhov's what's it the entire time and, and kept on finding things that seemed really like they were being pointed at specifically mm-hmm. and then pretty much didn't come up again Chekhov's thumbprint activated cell phone dan <laughs> Which was like, ahead of what its, the fuck? to be fair, that was ahead of its yeah, time. Yeah, sure. Because like, that was actually, that is a, that has been a real thing uh, since. Sure, but like, yeah. I was like, oh, there's going to be like a bomb or there, whatever. Or a but severed no. thumb that you would use to like, yeah, get that or something. Yeah. 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 Um, I also thought of Chekhov's pull up diapers. <laughs> 
those kind of make an appearance, but there's not a plot point. Yeah. I would like to say just for the fun of it, Chekhov's Russian gangster. <laughs> just to be super literal. Fair enough. Fun. Fair enough. Okay. I, I think for me, it, it always it will be the crack in the grocery store, Anna, where like it is easily the most groaning line, like joke line in the entire film where gordon says it seems like there's something that's coming between us and then suddenly the earth cracks and there literally divides kate and gordon could that be a harbinger or something who knows <laughs> maybe you know just saying could gordon fall into a crack or something <laughs> yeah. at some point yeah, yeah. yeah. all right poor gordon we'll talk more we're, about yeah yeah later, we're gonna talk I, more about I, gordon I, we're on the same page here my heart aches for gordon exactly dan we should probably get talking about the movie in general. Do you want to run down the plot? I would be for us? happy to, Anna. So let's start with Act One: uh, The Earth Not Dead Yet. Uh, so let's go back to the days of 2009, when a black man was president. The Black Eyed Peas dominated the pop charts, and a dashing African American geologist, Adrian Helmsley, visited his friend Satnam in India. Adrian learns that solar flare activity is causing the Earth's core to heat up. Helmsley flies back to D.C. and crashes a black tie event to give White House... Is it chief of staff or science advisor, Carl? It's chief of staff. It's one of the problems. I mean, I just... I've already... Listeners, you cannot see me putting my hands over my face, struggling to not jump in right away. Yeah. No, but this is worth figuring out. White House chief of staff, Dan. I know he's listed as chief of staff, but if he was the chief... So, yeah, okay. Because it's like... Just stop. Just stop. Just... Okay. We'll talk about it later. Okay. Anyway, he <laughs> crashes the black tie event to give Carl Anheuser the bad news. Anheuser immediately believes him after digesting That's the report bad. inside of 10 <laughs> seconds, leading the U.S. president to brief his G8 counterparts a year later. In 2010, the China... That's a real lag, Dan. <laughs> Just going to say you had to worry about the midterms, Anna. I mean, you know, that's like, right. that's the thing. All right. No, fair enough. In 2010, the Chinese government is displacing lots of Tibetans, blowing up mountains near the very fake Choming Valley and asking locals for welding experience to volunteer. Tenzin does so while the rest of his family is moved. When we then move to 2011, all the good art in the Louvre is replaced with fakes and super rich people are getting some secret briefings. All the good art. And the Mona Lisa. Oh, that was good. That was good. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you were underwhelmed by the Mona Lisa as well? No, you know, I mean, there's like the Mona Lisa effect, which I believe is documented, which is like in, it, you you can't help but be underwhelmed. Right, because it's know? a small painting and you're also like yeah. standing far away from it and so forth. So anyway. it's fair enough. Anyway. All right, let's get to the good part, which is in 2012, author slash chauffeur Jackson Curtis is taking his kids to Yellowstone for the weekend, leaving his ex-wife Kate to go shopping with her plastic surgeon boy toy Gordon. At Yellowstone, Jackson's favorite lake is fenced off. Jackson and kids climb the fence and see that the lake has just evaporated. They are then taken into custody and brought to Adrian, who is studying the area and is also one of the few people who actually read Jackson's novel. After their release... (laughs) Sorry, 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 sorry. Keep going, keep going. Was that your line in the sand, Anna? I'm just saying there there is an exchange of dialogue where they, whatever, they take... Jackson and his kids into custody, yeah. and then the science advisor, Adrian Helmsley, says, I'll handle this. <laughs> I mean, come on, I would assume that's one of the perks working for the White House, where it's just like, you just say, if you're the White House, if you're a White House official and you're like somewhere out and you say, I handle this, most people might defer to you at that moment. I'm just oh, okay, and then yeah. and then there's the, are you the Jackson Curtis that <laughs> wrote? Farewell, Atlantis. Farewell, Atlantis. Yes. So. 
Anyway, after they're released, they bump into conspiracy theorist Charlie Frost, who tutors Jackson about Earth crust displacement theory and the world ending amidst pickle bites. Anna, Gordon is played by Tom McCarthy, and I really genuinely feel like the secret to understanding this century is reconciling his role in this film with the fact that he also directed the genuinely great Academy Award winning film Spotlight. And I would be... If you have the secret for this, let me know. Oh, I was I was going to be like, okay, Dan, reconcile. Like, go for it, because I want to hear it. I have... That is a really interesting confluence <laughs> of facts. Yes. I don't know how you get from one to the other, really. Um, except to say that movie making has changed a lot. Yeah. I don't know. I, like, I mean, I like to think that maybe by whatever, like, his check was for this role enabled him to take the risk to direct that film. Because um, it is a good there film. Go. But also, the Tibetan displacement scene is, um, <laughs> how to put this gently, extremely awkward. <laughs> oh, boy, Dan. You know, we have mentioned that this is... Um, Emmerich's most global, yeah. global disaster movie. <laughs> and I have decided what that means is that you see lots of brown people suffer in addition to white people suffering. <laughs> that is Emmerich's version of woke. <laughs> like, so you're saying that when, when, in doing this, Emmerich does not discriminate against who dies. They're all going to die. So like, at least in that sense. Well, think about it. We usually, yeah. in the movies we've seen before, yeah. we we see lots and lots of white people die. That's we true. really do. Like one of the things that I've now recognized as an Emmerich trope is that there's a just a shitload of death. Oh, like yeah. he does not, some people shy away from showing death in disaster movies, right? It's just implied. So it's interesting. Emmerich is like, you meet people and then they die. That's true. So like, there are char- I mean, like, but it's weird. He does two things. There are characters who always die in the first act. That is clearly one of the tropes that that Emmerich has. Yeah. But there's also a lot of sort of generic death in the sense, of, and we see we'll we'll come to this in a little bit. But it was certainly true in Day After Tomorrow. It was true in Independence Day. It was definitely true in Moonfall, where like they just sort of random people die. And again, Emmerich's gift normally is that you see that, and you're like. It's so over the top that you're like more amused than you are like appalled or anything. Yeah. Although it's also he does this thing where like I think it was in this movie where during one of the earthquakes, there's a scene of people dangling off of a high rise. Yeah, maybe. That's you don't see in every disaster that movie. Is true. <laughs> like, you're saying it's it's that extra it's that extra touch that Emmerich gives that like makes right. It and then there's also um, I was going to mention this in debris field, but since we're talking about weird you know extraneous deaths. There's the scene where they're escaping L.A. and there's two old women in front of them. And it's kind of the joke. (laughs) Old women driving slow. Ha ha. Right. That's like a typical joke. And then they die. And then he kills them. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's just. okay. Yeah. I'm Um, not going to lie on it. I did laugh. I think the first time I saw that. It's yeah. I want to say something about the nostalgia that this movie provoked for me, which is the G8 protest. Dan, do you remember the G8 protest? I certainly do remember the G8 protest. You probably had a slightly different experience than I did. Yes, I, I think I did. But, but which is, me. I was at them. Ah, fair enough. So mm-hmm. they're probably, and there are pictures on the internet somewhere of me at the 2001 G8 protests in DC, which I don't know if you remember those those that got kind of spicy those were those were one of the spicy ones not as bad as seattle but uh. i think i was working for the government then anna well i was marching outside there we go and i was carrying a sign uh shaped like a giant piece of kale (laughs) 
I found it with my friend John Cook, and we didn't know what it meant either, but we just decided it was a it was a form of protest because absurdity is a form of protest. And so we carried our kale sign as we marched through the streets of D.C. Fair enough. Not getting arrested or uh, tear gas. And mm-hmm. um, we left the scene before that, that stuff started happening. I've actually never been tear gassed, Dan. I feel kind of bad about that as an activist. Uh, I am not an activist, and I've also never been tear gassed. So. <laughs> and in fact, I'll, I'll be honest, I think the first protest I went to was in 2017. So that shows how like totally Aww. out of it I am. Yeah, but it's kind of sweet because <laughs> yeah. Trump did that for a lot of people. Yep. Dan. And then I already kind of j- jumped in to say one of, again, when one starts a sentence with one of the most absurd things about this movie, it just already <laughs> falls apart. Like, it's already hard to finish the sentence. But maybe I have so many lines of sand, but the White House, the black tie party. Yes. He takes his stuff to the chief of staff, Dan. Like, there's this whole chain of command. It's just like the whole thing. Well, also, like, he has to clearly do it that evening. Like, you know. Yeah, that evening. Th- and also, yeah. he hands them a piece of paper. And then the guy's like, you know, and they changes. What was on that paper? Well, this, so like, I, ha- I confess that, like, I think until I read, like, the plot summary of this, I had always assumed that that Carl Anheuser was the science advisor because, and I think the reason that is, would make sense. And I think because See, it's that, that would scene, make right? Sense, it, it would make sense. He would go to like the the science advisor, and it would also make sense that the science advisor. I could buy the idea that he's going to flip through these pages immediately, discern what's going on, and say, "Okay, now you're you know reporting directly to me." So I'm actually kind of flabbergasted that he was the chief of staff. It's never said in the film to my under, if, if memory serves. But like the idea that like he's this you know science advisor is yeah. much more plausible than what we actually get. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. 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 So that's it. Gene Andy Card in that situation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Better yet, a Reince Priebus. Uh, <laughs> or or uh, Rahm Emanuel. Yeah, actually. he could do that. that. Okay. That would have been good. That. that and he was Rahm Emanuel that, at the time he, the film came out, to be fair. That so. would actually, it, the movie suddenly makes sense to me. Yes, <laughs> fair enough. And I will say, we're, we're going to talk about this later. One of the things I genuinely liked in this film is Oliver Platt's performance. Yes. He's really good in it. And we'll get to the, uh, this a little bit better. Uh, hey, Dan, you want to go into Act 2? All right, let's move to Act 2, which I have called Earth Go Boom. Jackson and the kids head back to Los Angeles while Adrian informs the president that the end of the world is arriving ahead of schedule. Anna, a scientist, was wrong again in an Emmerich film. <laughs> right, but wrong. Right, There's but this wrong. weird thing. Yes, exactly. Like, right, yeah. but like it, overly optimistic in, in the end. Yes. Yeah. Jackson chauffeurs Russian billionaire Yuri Karpov and his family to the Santa Monica airport, and Yuri's kids are acting like they're never going to see Jackson ever again. Jackson then sees a small crack in the tarmac and immediately rents a plane and races to get his kids with, <laughs> with, and Anna, I think it, now is the time to talk about this because we I, we both had the same reaction, with a watch that an editor gave him. Now, we, Anna, you and I have both written books, and I'm pretty sure that both of us, all of our books have sold more than the 422 copies that Jackson's book sold, which is a fact that gets repeated multiple times in this film. I begin to wonder if 422 has like a mystical significance. I don't know. but I, I should have Googled I guess it. my question is, did an editor ever give you anything that nice? No. I did get a nice little spa gift. Ooh from my editor when I was in this last stretches of finishing dog days yeah. like she sent me like you know like a bath bomb oh that's thing, really sweet actually which is very sweet no, and very all sweet. I would expect yeah. to be honest mm-hmm. like that's appropriate level of gift yeah. right yeah. the expensive watch thing mm, you know publishing has been different in the past I don't know <laughs> like but 
I would think that that's like go-go 80s kind of kind of stuff, but... Yeah, I think this is one of these things where, like, the movies have quite not quite caught up with the actual realities of the publishing industry. Like, even yeah. in 2009, there's no way that an author is getting a watch like that, I'm no. just saying. Okay. However, just as Kate is telling Jackson to calm down and Governor Schwarzenegger, and I will add on, I did like that. That was hysterical that they actually had like someone speaking like Schwarzenegger because he was governor at the time. Just as Governor Schwarzenegger is telling California the worst is over, all hell breaks loose and we arrive at this film's most YouTube moment. A 10-minute sequence where Jackson... Kate, Gordon, and the kids racing his limo through mass destruction and carnage to the Santa Monica airport. Furthermore, because the pilot is dead, pilot trainee, and our hero, Gordon, because let's be clear, he is easily the hero of this film, is somehow able to take off just before the runway dissolves amidst an epic seed of disaster. Anna, let's talk about the scene just very, or the sequence very quickly. Do you describe it as good, 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 bad? Bad, bad, or just meh, meh for you? I wasn't particularly moved by it, except for, I mean, go, Gordon, go. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in any other movie, he would be the hero. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, he is nice. Mm-hmm. He is loving. He's respectful. His kid, He's the, affectionate. His stepkid, or like, not stepkids, but like, Kate's kids <laughs> love him. You know, yeah. Kate's kids love him. Yeah. He knows how to fly. Yeah. Like, Multiple times, he does amazing flying. Yes, like with only like a couple shit, of lessons. like Luke Skywalker shit, yes. right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, he's sort of he's not treated well by the movie. No, I think that, just, no spoiler alert, yeah. not treated well by the movie. Not at all. No. And I that very first scene of him flying is actually a good scene. I would say of all of that disaster footage, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it is, you know, it's shot in a way that's genuinely like. Ah, what's going to happen? You right. know, you know, you get excited about it because also it is set up that he doesn't hasn't actually had very many flying lessons. Right. So no, there's actually there's legitimate would have been permissible in the logic of the movie. Yeah. It would have been permissible for him to like not do a good job. Right. Exactly. And right? The, no, Tom McCarthy does a great job in that in that acting moment. And also there's legitimate tension about whether they're not going to they're going to make it away. Yeah. So it's, it, it that part is legitimately good is the way I would put it. Yes. 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 They fly to Yellowstone so Jackson can retrieve one of Charlie's maps. He, he does great landing in addition to good flying. Yes, yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> he's never probably landed before. He's never flown on his own. He's got, this plane has two engines on it. I mean, he'd only done on single engines before. Again, right, a miracle right. they survive. But they land in Yellowstone so Jackson can retrieve one of Charlie Frost's maps that says where all the ships are to protect survivors. And all I'm going to say here is this is my line in the sand, Anna, because it does strike me. <laughs> it does strike me. You could have just called Charlie to ask him because I'm pretty sure he would have known. That's all I'm saying. This is, 2000, this is 2012. There were cell phones. Just saying that. Well, you know, it's funny. That didn't even occur to me. Yeah. I actually totally bought that he'd have to go into the wilderness to to seek out Charlie. The whole scene involving Charlie is another story. That's true. So I will say the plot, like the the logic that he has to get there is bad. On the other hand, any dose of Woody Harrelson in this film raises the film. There's no denying that. So Jackson gets the map just as Yellowstone turns into an erupting supervolcano that looks an awful lot like a nuclear explosion. They're going to need a bigger plane to get to China, so they land in Vegas and reconnect with Yuri and his entourage. Yuri's pilot, Sasha, finds a plane they can use to get to China, but he needs a co-pilot, and Gordon saves the day yet again. 
As the ash cloud descends on Vegas, they barely escape. Anna, any thoughts on this whole sequence? Sasha, also a great pilot. Yes. I mean, really heroes of the movie. They I are. Would say. And I have to admit, Anna, I don't know if this is sexist for me or not, but my favorite line in this entire film, hands down, is when they're trying to take off from Vegas and Sasha says, come on, move your big ass for Sasha. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> and Sasha is also hot. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And just also a great pilot. Seems like a good guy. Yes. Spoiler alert. Having an affair with, with, the, Russian with the Russian gangster's Russian girlfriend. girlfriend. Yes, yes. But, you know... He, he but he does his job, Anna. He actually he does gets his job. Yes. He is willing to sacrifice his life yes. for the whole team. Again, the pilots you are know. the underrated heroes of this film. I think we're in agreement on that. I, I want to say a little more about Woody Harrelson because yeah. it's an amazingly brief appearance, really. Right. He's only like, in it for like three scenes, basically. I assume he was incredibly high the entire time. <laughs> Not that you can often tell yeah. with Woody Harrelson, yeah. you know. I hope he got paid a lot. I think that death scene is one of the most gonzo balls out death scenes filmed. Yeah. Like he's he gets obliterated by a super volcano and he is like giddy welcoming the destruction. <laughs> yes. No, again, this is you said this before and I think you're right. Emmerich actually normally gets pretty good performances out of actors and Woody Harrelson turns in a really good performance. Like, it really does bring the film up a notch when he's there. And I will say also, uh, John Cusack is engaging in almost everything he's in. Mm -hmm. He's engaging in this. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not given a ton to work yeah. with, but, you know, whatever. Danny Glover also yeah. does a good job of Oliver Platt. Like, great performances given yeah. the, the, you know... Given, 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 given everything. listeners, we're just we'll waiting, we're just like gesturing with our arms <laughs> to indicate the mess that is the entire rest of this film. Yeah. Yeah. Act three. Let's move to act three, the fast plane to China. The White House evacuates, but President Wilson opts to stay behind as Adrian Anheuser and first daughter Laura leave via Air Force One. The president addresses the nation and tries to offer words of comfort, but oops, the power goes out, which doesn't bode well for the entire rest of the planet. A combination of ash clouds, earthquakes, and tsunamis devastate a variety of world-renowned monuments, culminating in a tidal wave carrying the USS John <laughs> F. Kennedy, drowning Washington, D.C., and the White House. Either because there are no members of the cabinet who have survived or because Emmerich is just hand-waving the Constitution at this point, Anheuser claims he's in charge now and no one protests. Oh, I think this is a Hague moment. This is now is a Hague, Hague moment. moment? <laughs> this is, this but, is but just like, I'm in Hold charge. On. Time out. <laughs> I, all right. So the, the, the political side is he will protest. Al Haig was wrong to say, gentlemen, read your Constitution. I'm in control here. But at least yeah. Al Haig was Secretary of State. Like, the Secretary of yeah, State is in the 25th Amendment, I believe, in terms of, like, line of succession. Chief of Staff ain't anywhere there, okay? It's above White House chef, yeah. but, like... <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that would be a hysterical thing. They, like, added an amendment to the amendment, and then there was a typo, and it said White House chef of staff rather than like, Chief of Staff. <laughs> That's just a quick aside. Okay. Anyway, the point is, Anheuser claims he's in charge now. Jackson, Yuri, and their families crash land in China. A Chinese helicopter spots them and lands to pick them up, but since Yuri and his sons are the only ones with boarding passes, they're the only ones picked up. So Jackson, Kate, Gordon, Tamara, and the kids just start hiking and, due to movie logic, stumble across Tenzin's family, making their way back to the Chouming Valley as well, so they hitch a ride. Meanwhile, Air Force One arrives at Chouming and Anheuser, Laura, and Adrian board ARC-4. 
Yuri is supposed to be boarding Arc 3, but the earthquakes have damaged it, leaving him and an awful lot of rich people cooling their jets with the boys from TSA Apocalypse. Um, <laughs> they're literally, they all have uniforms and everything. Yep. They're like matchy, matchy uniforms. It's really yep. good. One of the many times in the movie, I was like, how did the hiring go for that? I, like, what, you know? Or like, literally, like, <laughs> we've got to design a, Euro, a uniform for the boarding agents for the Ark for the Apocalypse. And how do you hire those boarding agents? Yes. Who are not getting on the, like, we're, okay, your job is to do the crowd control of who gets on the arc. Okay, and then I got, nope, you don't get on the arc. You just. Well, I'd always assume, they never, they never discuss this, but I assume the only way you could actually do this is if you had literally built one arc for all the working class people who were actually yeah, doing things, yeah. which would make oh, sense. We'll get to that. Yes, we'll, we'll get, get to, to that, that right, Dan. Yes, okay. We'll get to that. Uh, anyway. Adrian, meanwhile, appalled by the size of his his cabin in uh, Arc 4, gets a call from Satnam telling him he never got picked up. And, oh, by the way, there's a massive tidal wave coming from the east as well as the west. So, I have two questions. First, should we be happy that Emmerich at least went global this time in terms of his destruction of tourist attractions? I actually think this is the only, like, disaster Emmerich film I have seen where New York does not make an appearance. Like, nothing in New York gets destroyed, I'm pretty sure. Which is highly um, unusual. Yeah, I mean, he well, he in the interviews for this movie, yep. he talks about wanting to be global. There you go. In that, I, for some reason, thought this was amusing. He wanted to destroy the Kaaba, the cube at the center of the Hajj. Oh, the black cube at the center of the oh, Hajj. Oh, in Mecca. Yep. Oh, uh, but he was worried he would get fatwood <laughs> if he. If he did that again, I, so the classic Everett thing, which I, 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 you know, I simultaneously laughed at and saluted, is when you see the crack in the Sistine Chapel separating yep. Adam yep. and the and crack Adam. comes. Yeah. We, hey Dan, it's sort of like something has come between God and Adam. <laughs> yes, there you go. Much like a crack in a grocery store, yep. you might say. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> the second thing, though, is that I one of the reasons I like this film is that. Emmerich doesn't normally have human villains, as we would put it. I mean, they're occasionally officious bureaucrats. You know, we saw that with Nimziki in, in Independence Day, for example. We see that with the NASA director, I guess, in Moonfall. Oliver Platt actually takes a lot, like, makes a, a whole buffet out of his role here. And so he's easily the most fleshed out bad guy, I think, in Emmerich's Apocalypse of Canon. Would you agree? Yeah, I have noticed that in three out of the five Emmerich movies we have seen, the villain is a White House staffer of some kind. <laughs> Vice president. Well, Vice president. Okay, I was going to say, yes, yes. Staff, yeah, yeah. a White House functionary yes. of some kind. He's running out of White House people to be villains. Maybe we will get to the White House chef <laughs> being the villain in an Emmerich movie. There you go. And as to whether or not uh, Anheuser is the most fleshed out villain, I mean, he's the most villain. Yeah. Right. And, and and Platt is the most actor. Yeah. And actually, like, even, like calling him a villain is actually not even all that fair, because as we will talk about, like there there were hard calls you have to make. And like, you know, I think he had some rationales for why he did some of the things he did. Yeah. I mean, he, although I, as I will talk about, I mean, he's pre he is presented as. A oh, villain. yeah. No, he's like, he's I think you are correct. Yes. He's portrayed as a villain yeah. as to whether or not what he's doing is villainous. Yes. We will. We will. We, we should. We shall discuss Okay, it. well, we can close After up. Act 4, yes. Dan. After Act 4, which is always how Act 4 in an Emmerich film goes, it's the end of the world and I feel fine. Adrian recalculates when the water will reach Choming, and instead of two hours, it's more like 20 minutes. And listeners who show up to a flight two hours in advance are feeling pretty smug right now, is all I'm saying. <laughs> 
Tenzin? I am one of those people, Dan. I get to the airport like three hours ago. Really? So, I would never have yeah. guessed that. Wow, that's just interesting. Yep. Okay. Uh, Tenzin, Jackson, and families stow away on Ark 4. They almost succeed in completely making it on board the Ark, and then that do-gooder Adrian has to go and do good that good stuff. He pleads with the other Arks to let in everyone who hasn't boarded yet. Tenzin is hurt. Gordon is crushed to death. R.I.P. Gordon, man. I mean, just he didn't deserve to go out like that. He deserved to live. He deserved to live. He deserved to live. Jackson, maybe. Yeah. Eh. Eh. <laughs> and the gears get jammed, making it impossible for the Ark to get underway. Yuri also dies, his last act being to push his sons into one of the Arks. The wave hits Arc 4, setting it adrift and right toward the north face of Mount Everest without the engines needed to avoid a fatal collision. Adrian makes his way down to the hydraulic chamber to fix the gears, but the flood doors have closed, trapping the stowaways and drowning Tamara. Adrian tells Jackson that the gears must be cleared, but the chamber is now flooded, so it's a suicide mission. Jackson swims to clear the gears, but not before Kate gives him a passionate kiss less than 10 minutes after our hero Gordon has died. I am not a fan of Kate is all I'm saying here, Anna. Mm. Ja- yeah. Jackson and his son Noah dislodge the tool and manage to survive, thereby proving that Adrian was wrong once again. Did they get a round of applause for this? They're the ones that jammed it. Yes. This bothers me. This is sort of a line in the sand, honestly. Okay, good. Yes. Yeah. Like, they sneak on. Mm-hmm. It turns out you don't need to sneak on. Okay, fine. They didn't know you weren't going to have to sneak yeah, that, on. Yeah, that, right? that I'm willing to okay. forgive, yes. Fine, yeah. fine, 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 fine. They are the reason why the gears are jammed. Yep. Like, people should be pissed, Mm -hmm. you know? The least he can do (laughs) is go back and unjam them. Also, suicide mission? What suicide mission? Right, exactly. As I said. It's not a suicide mission. He shows up, as we all know. He shows up. Yep. Unlike Gordon. There we go. Oh, Gordon. You deserve better. Poor Gordon. Anyway, 27 days later, the waters are receding and the arcs are headed for the Cape of Good Hope because the continent of Africa apparently shifted up. (laughs) during all of this, and apparently never flooded. Adrian and Laura are now together, and Jackson and Kate are back together, and Gordon? Who's Gordon? We never even remember Gordon, okay? Like, it took less than a month. month, Not even a month, Dan. Not even a month. We are so in sync on this, Anna. Yes. Everyone's still alive, lives happily ever after. Except, Anna, how to put this? If Africa Hmm. likely never flooded, and those ships pull up to dock... What are the odds there's going to be some straight up murdering going on? Because, I mean, I doubt a lot of Africans were asked to be on the arcs. It is possible. <laughs> I'm just putting this out there. It is possible that the survivors in Africa might be a little pissed about this. Well, what? You think the rich white people on the arcs, mm-hmm. they might not get the welcome that they think they deserve <laughs> from the Africans that welcome that, that are still warm and dry yeah. and have arable land? Yeah. Yep. You know, and I also had the thought, like, what does it mean to be rich in this post-apocalyptic world, Dan? (laughs) What would it, would the international banking system survive? (laughs) And actually, a really good question is whether or not those arcs are armed. I think they would have, it's a valid question, and I honestly don't know, because it seemed like they really thought everyone else was not going to make it, so why would they be armed? But on the other hand, you know. People armed Yeah, I would say, the uh, you know. But, but when, I mean, it's an unpleasant thought to, 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 you know, 
uh, ponder, but that would be the only way. And I assume that is what happened, actually. Like, I mean, I just assume they're armed and they shot their way and colonized Africa again. It's like part two. It's like, yeah, this is I I think it's a good thing. The ABC sequel never really appeared (laughs) because if if it was fidelity to the plot, it would not have ended well. And you know what, Dan, speaking of of who survives and who doesn't, um, we're introduced to Adrian's dad (laughs) so he can die. Yes, Anna, you will notice I did not mention him throughout any of the plot description because to the basic elements of the plot, it doesn't matter. But nonetheless, yes, Adrian's father is a, I believe, a a jazz pianist uh, who plays on a cruise ship. And his partner is George, played by George Siegel. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they're... Great performances in these little tiny roles, by the way. yeah. Yeah. Well done. George Siegel, he has the fucking thankless little bit of plot to call his estranged son Ooh, yeah. as the world is about to end and not get him. <sighs> to have his estranged son pick up the phone. And then not be able to say anything. And then not be able to say anything. Like, I I wonder if Imrick is just cruel sometimes. Well, no, this like, is like, we were talking about this. I, I there is a slow escalating amount of sadism, I actually think, in the way Emmerich shoots disasters. Because, like, in, in Independence Day, it's it's slightly goofy. It's well done. You know, you feel bad. But, like, you don't really... No one dies in a sadistic way. Whereas when you get to the day after tomorrow, those newscasters, like, the weather people, die <laughs> badly. Like, and it's clear that Emmerich is enjoying this. And I... I like, I, as you say, I don't even know why you include that scene in this film. It's a weird thing to do because it doesn't move the plot along and it's just designed to truly make you feel bad as if like the rest of the world just dying was not going to do that yeah dan we have some more things to discuss yes yes we do so um dan yes anna is there ir in this movie anna it's kind of galling when you realize that the nutbags with cardboard signs on the side of the road have a better grasp of IR than the creators of this film. (laughs) Which is to say that there is actually a lot of IR in this film. It's definitely the most IR-heavy, you know, film that Emmerich has ever made. The problem is on this viewing, I realize that almost all of it is bad. It's very, very bad, Anna. So... You know what, Dan? I, as a non-professional IR observer... (laughs) I thought it was pretty okay. bad. <laughs> yes, yes. I have my own. I have my own commentary and questions. That if you don't get to them, I have some things that I felt. Please do, Anna, because like again, it's a long list, so it's it, you know <laughs> it, it's going to take us a little while. So first of all, again, weirdly, Emmerich actually uses a real life thing. He actually talks about you know when uh, the the White House gets this news, they decide to present it to the rest of the G eight. The G8 was an actual thing at this point. Russia was only kicked out in 2014. So, you know, uh, Russia's a member. How to put this? There is no way that the G8 would be the body that the U.S. would use (laughs) to notify people about this. That's just not going to happen. If I had to pick, you would probably go with Five Eyes first, which is an intelligence grouping that consists of the United States, the U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, because presumably this is all super classified information. Then maybe you'd talk to NATO, but like, there's no way Russia is going to be one of the first countries notified about this, even <laughs> back in 2009. I had a smaller thing with that scene, Dan, yeah. and it just made me laugh. Okay. But basically, the president walks in and says, like, can you give us the room? Yeah, that would never happen either. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's right. That would never happen. Uh, there is no chance. In, I mean, like, 
Unless, Do- unless, let me this way, unless Donald Trump had been elected the other seven leaders of the GA, <laughs> that doesn't happen. There's a reason why you always make sure there's someone else from your government in the room when you're meeting with someone. You want to yeah. keep an actual record of shit. So yeah. yeah, that doesn't happen. Also, by the way, if you actually like ask everyone to leave the room and then have a meeting, guess what, Anna? The fact that you asked everyone to leave the I room- I think maybe people would try to listen. That might act- well, no, no, that would, there, there would be two effects. First, someone's going to listen in. Second of all, I guarantee you that's going to be on the front page of the New York Times You know, within an hour. Uh, like, you know, just <laughs> secret meeting had, even if you don't know, yeah, what, it is, know what it is, it's going to be like, the fact hey. of a secret meeting, that's what, that's like, you know, that's like when reporters would see if like lots of pizzas were being sent to the white house because there was a crisis brewing or something like it's, it, you can't do it that way. So that's, uh, that's not true. There is also a tremendous amount of international cooperation among great power governments in terms of coping with the end of the world. I mean, basically, everyone agrees that China will build the arcs. I guess they, you know, sort of all paid for it. But that's a surprising amount of international cooperation, uh, Mm. given that this is an endgame kind of situation. Because Mm. basically, if even even liberal, you know, internationalists in terms of, of foreign policy know that if there is no shadow of the future... Yeah, cooperation kind of breaks down. Um, and so, like, the idea that the Chinese wouldn't have just said, no, screw you, all of our people are going onto these arcs, that seems yeah, much more Yeah, I mean, I really feel like that's probably that's a much pretty, more I mean, thing. and an understandable reaction. Yeah, you yeah know? exactly. Like, we're going to build them. Yes. Our technology. Fuck you. Yeah. We had a really good run <laughs> as as an empire. Yeah. We think we're a better place to do it. So, like, I, it would have been yeah. amusing if, like, Air Force One lands. It's like, nope, sorry, you can't board. You know, we've got yeah. a passport <laughs> issue or something. So, like, that, again, wouldn't have happened. I also have a special laugh for the idea that the rush. There is a scene where, you know, Adrian is pleading his case to the other heads of state. And the Russian leader is the one who is moved by the humanitarian plight. That is unfortunately very funny um, in all uh, the wrong ways, but uh, there's no way. Mm. Also, I I am going to protest. There is this one sequence where you see like CNN covering the end of the world, basically. (laughs) It's always CNN in Emmerich's movies, by the way. That's true. Always. There's like showing panic in the streets of Rio. And, uh, you know, like they, they talk about like trying to like get the last few remaining resources. And again, to pursue this theme, we've talked about this before, Ada. There would not actually be that level of panic even after a mega earthquake. In fact, historical sociology shows that after, you know, a, a sort of shock like this, there's actually pretty strong on the ground cooperation. People will help each other. There is not necessarily going to be riots. Maybe if you had told people that could have led to some bad things, but but generally People don't behave like that. And it's one of the it's one of the, the movie tropes that is actually in some ways the most dangerous in terms of how mm-hmm. real world leaders react, which is the belief that they can't level with their own people. And that's one of the things that, frankly, leads to an erosion of trust in uh, authority and expertise, which is something that we can despair about all day. I think that's it for me. But Anna, I think you had a few questions. I had a few. Okay. You know how much I love epistemic communities. I know you like that concept. And- yes, yes. It seems to me that some scientists might be chatting with each other. Yeah. You know? Like that. So keeping this a secret, again, Mm -hmm. of all the things to take issue with, whatever, whatever, whatever. One of the reasons why they even find out about this Mm -hmm. is because of an epistemic community, right? Like the the two science friends. Satnam and Adrian get together. Yes. And again, R.I.P. Satnam, who without him, like who knows what the hell, you know. Guy who who warned the world. Why would he keep it a secret? He's he lives in India. 
I mean, so I, the movie's logic seems to be that anyone who actually did blab got killed, but I think you're right. Right, right, but right. That act, but that doesn't but, hold up in this instance. You're right, because the idea, and this is something that Emmerich doesn't deal with at all, which is there's not just going to be one scientist who, notice it, who notices that the Earth's core yeah. is heating up. This would be something that would become a more general... I don't think you could keep a lid on that. No, I agree. You know? This is uh, not a, you know, yes, that it is a plausible line in the sand to draw on of, which is to say. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yes, thank you. Yes, I think you're right about that. Um, the other IR thing I have a question about is President Danny Glover staying behind. Oh, yes. I, I don't, I don't know if that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't a good idea for him. Because, yeah. Right. But I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know if this is like more psychology than IR, but like we need leaders in times of crisis. And there is actually his daughter, Mm -hmm. when they're trying to, you know, argue that to let the masses in, says, if my father were here, he would open the gates. Which does raise the argument for having him be there. That's true. So (laughs) let me put it this way I think in the abstract sense, you're right. You know, again, if certainly, let's put it this way: if he's not going to be on there, he should have damn well made sure that, like, you Don't know, put Laura. I mean, he, he, Laura can't do anything. Right. His daughter is like not the one to be. Right, like, there's a in vice charge. president somewhere on it. Like, you know, like presumably he was brought in on the the you know the consultation. Like, you know, you would have made sure that there was continuity of government, and that was not something that was dealt with. You wouldn't leave it up to Anheuser. No, you wouldn't. Like, that's one of the reasons why why Anheuser can take charge yes. is because apparently at the last minute, <laughs> yeah, not Obama in the non-existent White House chapel. Again, not a line in the sand, but there is no White House chapel. <laughs> Good to know. Just set, decides at the very last minute, having told no one, told no one. Yeah. He's staying So behind. there is a small part of me that understands this move, which is to say... Oh, I mean, I get... I mean, emotionally sure. But not just sure, emotionally. Sure. Weirdly, like, if the- you think of him as like a president of the old world, as it were. In other words, like the one thing I kept thinking was is that if he had actually gone on the plane, can you imagine how awkward that last address would have been for him? It would have been like... Oh, yeah, you don't yeah, do you it. Yeah, you don't do That's my... Or you pre-tape right. it. Right, and so I... Or you pre-tape it so you don't have the thing happens that happens in this movie, which is, those are some pretty fucking calm camera operators. Yeah, everyone else around that white... I was going to say, <laughs> they're all abandoned at this point. They know they're staying with the president. They seem awfully chill about that. That was absolutely true. But let me put it this way. You, there is an argument to be made that your last act as president of your country is to actually offer something along the lines of soothing words to your members of your country. So like, I I, I can't hate that move. I agree with you that there's a problem with it. There are many problems with it, but like, I I wasn't as bothered by that. I don't, I kind of actually hate it, I think. Like, I mean, I see the emotional logic of it and I understand what you're saying, but honestly, like, even though, like, I hate authority, (laughs) there's a part of me that's like, if you're you're good at what you do and you don't trust necessarily other people to be good leaders... I mean, especially this is, I mean, I know, again, why, why, why even talk about well, no, this? It's, but this it's, is our show. A, but like, <laughs> this is our show. Yes. You would have to designate someone. Yeah. You would want to make it real clear. Yeah. You would want to tell somebody you're standing behind. And also, hey, Dan, yes, pop quiz. Yeah. Would Obama have stayed? Oh, not a chance in hell. No I know, way right? Obama stays behind. <laughs> no, no. No, 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 no. And I don't mean that. Like, again, there's a logic for getting on the goddamn plane. Oh, for the reasons plane. I yes, said, exactly. I think. He, he would be like, I'm good yeah. at this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have totally gotten on the plane. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And he would have figured, he would have pre-taped something. Like. Yes. 
because that would actually be a really good solution. And he could have actually <laughs> sold the apology is the other thing. I mean, he's a good, you know, he's a good speaker in that sense. I leave it this way. I think this part of it, part of it is because we've talked about this before. There are very few moments of genuine emotion in Emmerich films. And that was actually a genu- a moment of genuine emotion. And again, ge- you know, Danny Glover does a good job with that role. And, and so, I, you know, don't take that from me on it. That's all I'm saying. But you're right. Okay. The politics, yes, the, 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 most leaders would have gone on the ship. Yeah. Um, but this gives rise to another question. Anna? Dan? Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Dan, why don't you download my blog? <laughs> By the way, that like this again, a bit of nostalgia. Like I love like the, the whole the whole you've got to download my blog. I was like, oh right, in two thousand nine, that was all you had to say to like like totally diss a character. Well, you yeah. also you wouldn't have said download my yeah, blog, but whatever. Yes, yes, it's yes. it's so great. Yeah. It's great. Um, so we were talking about Anheuser being the most fleshed out villain. And I, I do think that Oliver Platt is why he's, he really stands mm-hmm. out. I do also agree that Emmerich clearly put a lot of thought into having a human villain in this movie. Right. Like almost as much as the disaster itself. The disaster is usually the villain. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. And this is rare. There's rare that there's actual human conflict in an Emmerich film. And there is right. some in here in this film. Yeah. I think that's part of the problem, which hmm. I, I don't think this movie quite works mm-hmm. um, in the same way that some of the other movies that we, we've seen have. I think th- this is not as good as Independence Day, yeah. definitely not as good as Moonfall, <laughs> um, not as good as Day After Tomorrow. And and I think it's almost because he tried too hard. <laughs> he, he actually is dealing with the true scope of human life. Right. He's dealing, in, in a global he's dealing with a human extinction event. To the extent that right. yeah, he is, yeah. and he tries to make it right, human. Exactly. Like yeah. we we see more people die, and he actually ponders a question that he normally does not put in a movie, mm-hmm. which is who gets saved, why, and how, and what is the trauma of survivors? What is the trauma of those left behind? Yeah. Like that's actually like kind of in the movie, which it just normally isn't. Right. I, and he does a bad job with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's just. He just does. He's just not up to the task, you know? Mm-hmm. And what I think Anheuser is is doing in that movie as a plot point is to make explicit this choice that's in, at the heart of any disaster movie, right? Who gets to survive? He is making just very clear that this is a decision that gets made at some level right. in every disaster movie, usually on a small scale when you're seeing watching a movie. Right. But he presents it as like it's as a national government level question. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a question we should be asking all the time, because mm-hmm. we are living in a slow rolling global disaster uh, that is late capitalism. But we we know who's going to survive, and we know why. Mm-hmm. It's, it's rich people. It's because they're rich. And this, I have to say, like again, this was a plot point I actually liked in the film. It it was. I know it was obvious, but I. It, it, <laughs> it, but it did. I. D- you liked it as a as a sort of criticism. Yes. Yes. Exactly. I assume. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, well, there's a reason why Anheuser's a villain and clearly a villain. Like you and I said, like he makes some, some char- hard choices have to be made. Right. Interesting passive voice, yeah. right? But um, he's clearly like coded as a villain. Yeah. And that's because as Adorno would attest, <laughs> this is a movie designed to soothe the masses. We want to believe mm. that it's wrong to think like Anheuser, mm. right? That 
that actually wouldn't happen necessarily in the real world. That survival wouldn't be determined by money and power. And as he says in the movie, God help me, eugenics, basically. Like, he doesn't <laughs> say eugenics. He uses the word, he said gene scientists or geneticists Genesis. have chosen. Yeah. And when you say that word, by the way, you are, that is eugenics. Yeah. <laughs> that is like a, yeah. literally a eugenics. Mm-hmm. So we, we, you know, as humans, especially maybe as the humans that are aware of our benefit and privilege, we want to believe that system doesn't necessarily play out, mm-hmm. that it can be subverted somehow. Like it is in the movie, right? right? They could be stragglers. Yay! Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. The masses get saved. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And it's important for the masses to believe well, that they can Not a large saved. number of the masses is small. But yes, yes, your point is well Right. Yeah. But in the, in the yes, logic yes, of the movie, yes. it's this moment of like, woohoo. And it does seem like a critique of capitalism. Mm-hmm. But Dan? Yes, Anna? When they tell you not to panic, that's when <laughs> First of all, as you point out, the people that get saved are already privileged, mm-hmm. right? Um, for the most mm-hmm. part. And even more to the point, they get saved by noblesse oblige. Mm-hmm. You know, they get saved on the whim of the global leaders, right? They aren't organizing for their own survival, obviously. They do not take over the means of production, even though they literally control the means of production. But this isn't important. This yeah. is how you're supposed to think about global capitalism. Right. That to fight it is... Um, pointless that the only way that you make your way in this world is if you are lucky or if someone picks you out of the crowd, Hmm. right? But here's my problem with Anheuser. Mm -hmm. While there are people like him in the world and we have elected some of them to the White Mm -hmm. House, late capitalism doesn't need Anheuser's. (laughs) It doesn't. You know this. Yeah. Like, the system works fine as it does if no one says anything about it. And that's actually in the movie. Like, Anheuser is just following orders in a way, mm-hmm. right? Like, that, the whole process that he describes, he did not set up. Right. This whole thing with the, what, well, there's not a lottery, but the geneticists and the heads of state and the charging bi- a billion euros, whatever. Yeah. The entire world government bought into mm-hmm. it. Adrian bought into it no adrian was shocked Donna. what are you talking about well, he, no no yeah, 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 yeah right yeah you know and he makes and, and anheuser makes a good point when he he tells laura and adrian oh you feel so sorry for them give up your past yes i actually like that was like you know he's got a point there and they don't no, actually there's no don't. thought given no. to it at all there's not even they don't they don't even they just sigh and room. they keep walking in yes yes, yes. yeah <laughs> they don't look for children in the crowd nope. for instance mm-hmm. which there were right and so they had years to think about whether this was the right thing to do, you know. They had years to think about whether or not you put your resources towards um, saving, you know, the Statue of David or saving more people, right? I also want to point out, this is a side note, but I think there are literally no works by women that are saved in the collection of art. Yeah. And I include in the books you see in Adrian's bag when he gets on the ark. But literally, no one seems to have tried to come up with another way to do things, hmm. you know, besides the arcs. Yeah. And the really villainous things is, is that they didn't open up the process to people who might have a stake in, for instance, thinking of other ways besides arc. In short, Dan? Yes. Fuck these people. <laughs> 
You know what? I will say this, Anna. This might be an area where Don't Look Up was actually better than this film. Oh yeah, I think I think you're right. I think yeah. like you know like yeah. we, we not neither of us were entirely crazy about Don't Look Up, but like the whole you know plutocrat you know coming up with the ship thing like in some ways and that was a much more explicit version and in some ways a little more plausible weirdly than what this film did and i think the problem is is that again if you squint too hard at the logic I and mean, we haven't talked about this but like there are plenty of things that are completely hand waved away like the idea oh <laughs> wait if we start yeah. and like it's like if you go mm, it'll explode like, like yellowstone <laughs> yes that's fair but like the idea that like everyone gets these boarding passes like yeah now's the time to go just as the world is ending that's gonna be a tricky logistical challenge to suddenly like be like oh yes now we have to get to this spot also physical boarding passes is funny that's yes. when i thought Chekhov's um cell phone <laughs> might come in handy is the fingerprint yeah. thing right yeah. They could we use a severed thumb to get that kid on the arc. Anyway, yeah, no, nothing holds up. Yeah. Nothing, and it. Unfortunately, the other thing that makes this a lesser Imric movie is is unlike like Moonfall is the best example of Imric just getting so much momentum up <laughs> that you, you just don't like, care. Cannot you don't no. care. You are just rolling with right. it because he is just pedal to the metal. Mm -hmm. You are speeding through these implausibilities. No time to check. <laughs> like just go 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 yeah. go go. This movie slows down a little, and you notice. No, that. the way I would put it is, I, and I. So I wasn't as much of a fan of Day After Tomorrow as, as you were. And I put these two films in what I would describe as Emmerich's Uncanny Valley. Because the Uncanny Valley is the idea that when something is, is close enough to looking human, but not quite, it creeps you out. And there's a way in which Emmerich's films are... Like Nicole Kidman. Mm. <laughs> there's, a way which, there's a way in which Emmerich's films like are either like on the caricature side, which is Moonfall... You know, like that, mm -hmm. like it's so bad that you just don't care and you throw things up. And then there are movies where, like Independence Day where the acting is sufficiently good enough so that it seems actually human. Like, and you're willing to put aside all the, the wild plot contrivances. This film is like close enough to being human because he's really like, and same with Day After Tomorrow where they're like trying to get at this. But the problem is, as you say, he's bad at it. And so like there's a feint towards it and it, it, it's done with just enough sort of recognition so that you actually start thinking about it and feel bad, but you don't actually enjoy it. And so, yeah, this was not as good on on this viewing, I, I think. And and part of this is because of I've now realized what I like about Emmerich and what I don't. And what I, while this movie on a superficial level had the most amount of IR, yeah, watching it this time, it's just so bad that like it, but it's, but it's boring bad, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. Oh, I was like, I was like doing Wordle at the end of it, you know, like. <laughs> Not completely invested. Yeah. But speaking of what we've learned from Emmerich, mm -hmm. Dan, this movie does have Emmerich tropes. Would you like to rattle some off? I was thinking, what have I learned from Emmerich more generally? I mean, this is the last, this is our last Emmerich Harry episode, Anna. I mean, if Moonfall yes. 2 comes out, we will, of course, cover that in great detail. But I'm trying to think what is like, like, like my sort of macro takeaway from having watched all of these films. And I think the thing I've learned about Emmerich is that I prefer his bad films to his, like, attempts to do good ones. Like, in the sense of, I liked Moonfall more than, than 2012, which I was not have expected, because 2012 was in most ways a better film. But Moonfall is so crazy dumb that it was just much more enjoyable to watch. I, it's funny, I feel like one can't predict if Emmerich is going to make a good, 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 bad, or 
good bad yeah they, movie. no it's totally random like it's it's schrodinger's <laughs> right and then there's like independence day which, like you don't yeah. know till it's out of the right. box and then, like i mean because i mean as the person who's done the story behind the story research yeah. like all of this shit kind of comes together in the same way for him like he reads some crackpot right. book <laughs> has a mexican writing bench <laughs> Get some top flight actors to commit because he has the right. money. And then he makes the movie. And sometimes it works. I mean, I if we I don't think Emmerich himself knows. Right. You know? Yeah. Like it's it's in, it's interesting that he uses like I was gonna make a joke earlier, like there's only so many personalized details that you can put in an Emmerich movie, right? There's only like so many things you can make different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's who in the White House is the villain, yeah, right? Yeah. What kind of dog? And there is a cute <laughs> dog in this film, which was nice to see. There is yeah, a cute yeah. dog. Uh, so he makes very similar mo- All these movies are incredibly similar to each mm-hmm. other. They all worked on slightly different levels. You know, right. No, it's true. So like, yeah. you know, when you're watching Independence Day, you're seeing Will Smith give one of the most charismatic performances on yeah. screen. Like, it's a legit yeah. great performance. I will never... And with Jeff Goldblum, with, yeah. they're like... It's, it's magic. more than the sum yes, of its parts. absolutely. It's, and then with Moonfall, yeah. we've talked about this. Patrick Wilson and Halle Berry are not good in that film, but it's so fucking absurd that I don't care. I was It, it was the feel-good movie of Somehow the woodenness of their yeah. acting, like, helps. Right. It's, it's, it, but yeah. this one is in between, and it's this weird... Th- well, like, uh, there are things I enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed Oliver Platt. I really enjoyed Woody Harrelson. I kind of enjoyed the, like, 10-minute destruction sequence, but, you know, yeah, it wasn't as good. The two things that I think... I, I guess I like for Emmerich, you know, like, that I have a soft spot, is first, as you say... Cute animals often appear in the film, and that's good. And second, he seems really concerned about divorced families. I think he might be Catholic. Mm. I didn't actually fact check that, but he really, really hates divorce. Yeah. <laughs> really. It's just like, you know, clearly a, a thing that like in every all of his movies, the divorced couple finds their way back together again. And I suppose that's nice. He is not religious himself, I should say. Mm-hmm. Actually, I should. I know that he's not a practicing Catholic. I, what I'd have to look into is whether or not his family is and it's some sort of just, you know, uh, idea that he had, you know, uh, inculcated to him somehow. He is very anti-religion and sort of bonus story behind the story. He was intentional in having the world's religious icons get destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> He said in an interview, like, <laughs> see, that does again, that's sadistic that I, I actually think that is that yeah. is honestly sadistic and not worth, you know. Yeah. I mean, if I had to say, like, what did I learn from Emmerich Airy? Again, so it's funny. So Moonfall really was the pinnacle of yeah. it. And there is it's just the power of just putting as much is just overstuffing the box, <laughs> you know, just adding more it's it's the it's the idea behind repeat until funny you know right like he just the more if he if he just goes for it like i think that there's it's i think we agreed because stargate it doesn't feel gone no no it's not at all it's the problem yeah right it feels a little too measured mm-hmm. right and Moonfall's the most gonzo in some ways uh independence day has a gonzo element to it as well like it moves real right. fast and you don't ask too many I think questions. it's a question of whether it's almost like there has to either he needs a plot that's really gonzo or he needs the actors be who have to be willing to commit to that level 
Yeah. It's one of those two. If you have both, that's that's great. Like Independence Day, I think, honestly, is that. But and in Moonfall, the plot is sufficiently gonzo. The problem is, is that in in 2012 and Day After Tomorrow, some of the actors are really good, but the plots are actually weirdly more grounded, which is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, so we've talked about a lot. This is actually going to be one of our longer yes. episodes. But Dan, what do I hear in the distance? Oh my God! It's pieces of Los Angeles. It's the J. It's the USS jo- John uh, F. Kennedy. Yes, yes, yes. John F. Kennedy. It's coming. It's the debris field. Yes. Huge debris field. What do you got? Oh, a few things, Anna. So first, again, you know, adventures in lazy screenwriting. Maybe this is my first line in the sand. You know, when Jackson comes back with the kids from Yellowstone, you know, Kate thanks him for bringing the kids home early. And then Jackson says he's late for work, which is weird since he otherwise shouldn't have been there. So, like, again, it's just a minor thing, but, like, it demonstrates, you know, not a huge deal. We talked uh, the day after tomorrow, there was Dennis Quaid's, like, second in command, the guy who keeps telling, saying Jack all the time. I do want, yeah, I want to give a shout out, uh, shout out to the role of Scotty, I believe, which is Adrian's aide in this film, you know, sort of big guy with glasses, who literally, if... At some point, if you want to watch this film, just watch what he does. Literally, all he does is freak out. Like, that is his entire pr- job in this film. He either has to carry Adrian's bag or he freaks out. It's, it's just very amusing. I would never call Emmerich's films feminist, Anna, but <laughs> the scenes on the plane where only the guys are consulted about what's going on seem super sexist to me. Am I wrong about that? I don't know, Dan. I mean, it's the guys that know what they're yeah, doing. Yeah, you know. What I, I mean, mean uh, I yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There were helicopters always. Whenever you see the arcs, there were helicopters flying over them for just no reason whatsoever. I couldn't figure that out. Yeah. Oh, besides carrying the, carry the animals, actually, so I should put this in my debris field as like something I kind of liked, which is the animals getting. I did carried. like that. That was cool. Like it's kind of. I mean, I don't want to think about it too much because the animals must be in such distress right. were that really happening but it's a cool scene yeah, totally made sense that glad they're rescuing the animals that was actually good and then finally yeah. this was in, in a trailer as well for this movie and i remember seeing the trailer here but like there's that bell on the tibetan mountaintop specific like you know and then the monk starts ringing the bell as the flood is about to wash him away and i was just wondering was that bell there only in case of global flooding or were there other contingencies would you like to look at the Wikipedia entry for the large bells that are used in Buddhist practice, I, Dan? I very well might. I'm going to need to look at this. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Lots of Buddhist monasteries have those bells. Fair. Um, I think it's the amusing thing is that he, it, they're calls to prayer usually, ah, okay. right? Yes, that would make sense. So the amusing thing is that he sees this flood as... Time to pray, I guess. ...a yeah. reason, you know, but... Yeah. Excellent. So, what about you, Anna? Uh, good. Um, there's an alcoholic in this movie that chooses to drink because he thinks he's going to yeah, die. Yeah. Regular listeners know that I have thought about this a lot. I think there's a, a, I think a couple things. I, I think someone with 25 years of sobriety just wouldn't do mm-hmm. it, by the yeah. way. Because he, me, with 10 years and 11 months of sobriety, I can't imagine doing it. Not... I mean, in this particular case, there, we know there's an alternate ending in which he gets rescued. So that would be That bad would be super awkward at that point. I was thinking that. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> so what if you get rescued? There's always the what if you don't die? Right. Like he relapsed and you're now going to have to do all the work of early sobriety over again. That sucks. <laughs> um, that's the main reason I don't relapse, by the way, is early sobriety is terrible. Mm-hmm. 
and I just never want to do it again. <laughs> and then I'll just say this for people who maybe didn't hear the episode where I talked about this more. You know, sobriety is not just about drinking or not drinking. There's, there is, you know, peace and closeness and the ability to be, to yeah. feel things uh, that comes with being sober that for an alcoholic, those things, I don't get those things when I drink. Other people who aren't alcoholics can drink and still feel close to people, still, you know, whatever. Drinking does something different for me. I don't want to die not feeling close to the people around me. So, anyway. This just exchange of dialogue made me laugh, so I'm going to repeat it. The director of the Louvre was an enemy of humanity? After he called a press conference, he was. (laughs) I thought that was great. I don't know. I mean, I can't tell you why I thought that was so funny exactly, but Mm -hmm. I did. We talked about the amazing composure of all the people who were working in the White House. (laughs) The camera guys who I kept thinking about, like, the people who are like, we need to film something. What are we filming? Oh, um, it's my last address ever because we're all going to (laughs) die. I like to think, I I do like to think there was one guy who was so focused on his job, he wasn't actually listening to the speech. And so therefore it was like, okay, we got it. Wait, why is everyone so sad? What's going on? (laughs) Um, I am curious what they told the workers uh, who were building the arts. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> uh, there's also this... We didn't talk about this at all. Like, uh, Jackson Curtis's book that is just randomly a, a kind of part of the story, but not... Farewell Atlantis, like, which I believe is supposed Farewell to be... I believe Atlantis. it's supposed to be a sci-fi book, right? Because, like, some of it takes place yes, on the space shuttle. I think shuttle. it's a sci-fi book. Yeah. In, in, in space yeah. shuttle and also a post-apocalyptic apparently has a happy ending where humans rescue each other. I don't know. It doesn't sound great. Like, <laughs> but Anna, in the end, they and, realized that at least everyone, everyone had at least one relative from Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. That's right. That's I, that I actually thought it was a good line. I was going to say yes. That's yeah. a good line. That so Adrian like brings it on the arc, and he's like, "This book is part of our legacy now. Why? Because I'm reading it." <laughs> this is not comforting, I think, to authors, right, Dan? Like. I don't know. It's a little comforting. I mean, I like the idea of like the. I mean, of- I don't know. Like, I mean, there was so much that went into like the choosing of the art, I guess, and it's just a random. Like, oh, because you, yeah. you know what? <laughs> like, you know what I read on a trip? <laughs> like Dean Coates. <laughs> Fair enough. So I don't know if I. It's my bag. Wouldn't have been a great selection, yeah. maybe. I also don't think there was a ton of thought put into these arts. Oh, yeah, we should get... Okay, yes, yes. That was bad on a variety Maybe of levels. Maybe they shouldn't have been launched so close. Or, you know what? That was Here's my, an even that, crazier thought, that, Anna. Maybe you don't put all the arcs in the same location on the planet, given that you don't know oh, what's going to yeah, happen. Well, that yeah, made no sense well, either. Yes, yes. And I feel like they weren't well thought out, but they did have swag. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> At the very end, like, you see them, like, wearing, yeah. like, arc four... You know, and which also bodes well for an end to tribalism, I think, or bodes bodes ill for an end to tribalism. Because right? like, I mean, if our, your arcs are oh, already like geared arc up. Like, I'm arc four, are man. Like really go at you it. Know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the last thing I re- I actually have it written in my notes: what the fuck, Jackson's book. <laughs> um, <laughs> if anyone out there can find the chapter that was posted, send it. To send it to us. both of us. I want to read that too. Send yes, it to I agree. Us. I'm Please. curious about what this book was like. Space the nation mail at Gmail. Please send it to us. So that's about it. We I think we managed to talk more about this movie that we did not like than any of the other Emmerich 
films. So we didn't like it, it. Gave us a lot of I think fodder. We didn't like it in if, interesting ways, Anna. That's the way I would put it. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, that's that's what people yes. count on. Yes. You know, Dan, we haven't thanked Karen. No, in a we while. have not, and I feel bad about that because, particularly given that we're talking about this film and, like, you know, the the we need to make sure that that Karen, I would want you on our arc. Is all is all I would. Oh, I mean, oh, for and Alwyn, sure. obviously, yeah. Oh yes, Alwyn, and I guess your husband yes, too. Yes. I mean, I don't know your sure. husband. I'm sure he's a wonderful man. So yes, him too. Yes, yes. Yeah, he we probably need him to help take care yeah. of Alwyn, so you can continue to edit our exactly. show on the arc, which we would continue to produce. <laughs> Perhaps we would. Perhaps we would cover Farewell Atlantis. I'm sorry. Now I have this image of like the arc is in, in, in the confines of 2012. Did someone decide to start a podcast on the arc? <laughs> <laughs> There's enough white guys on that, oh God, on that arc. Like, you can start a podcast. There be at least 100 <laughs> podcasts. Welcome today to Cafeteria Food. <laughs> We're going to talk about what we got served on Monday. Sorry. <laughs> oh and then what else do we need to say i don't think there's a lot else um if you enjoyed this episode rate and review become a patron if you're not already we are both on twitter at anna marie cox at dan dresner we have gotten an influx of new patrons we're very grateful for them dan yes. and we we promise yeah, uh, we, we recognize that emmer carey has been how to put this perhaps there's been some junk food in this, and mm. we are about to pivot to more nutritious sci-fi and poli-sci because next week is broccoli. broccoli. Basically, <laughs> next week is Ministry for the Future, so yeah. we will be yeah. talking. And which I'm sure is going to be really. Inter- I, I hate that I'm doing this, but I am. Like it's just I am so scarred from the three body problem. <laughs> <laughs> You're really worried. You, you I, this has generated a resentment for you for Obama that I think is fascinating. That that is a whole separate yeah. conversation. You, Obama has bad taste in science fiction. Mm. That is my belief there we now. Go. Well, we will find out. It will be put to the test when we read Ministry for the Future. So, Dan, we're at 187 patrons. 187. That's 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 not very far from 250. No, we're pretty. We're getting closer to 250. And at 250, Anna, we will record a special patrons-only podcast on a topic chosen by the patrons. And as I think someone put it in the Discord or in Twitter, I can't remember. But the point is, we need to choose slightly more upbeat topics i think this time around and we promise we will do that for the 250th um we will yes well we will well we'll, we're leaving up to the patrons but we hope that you choose something more we will offer a a menu perhaps that will contain more optimistic possibilities yes Yes. and our only restriction is tv series are not in the scope of this podcast we will do single episodes from tv series series, but we will not do entire tv series would be the way to put it and we will do arcs we could do arcs that would be the way to put it yes I can't think of much else we got going on. This is already a long episode. So, Dan, until our next episode. Keep this channel open for more.